Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Hey, so thanks for joining us for another episode of the Open World Podcast. I'm excited you're here, and today I'm joined by Derek Loudermilk. He's a professional cyclist, world explorer, scientist, and adventurer. He's been a full-time slow traveler for the last two years. He's currently living in Ubud, Bali. He's also been to all 50 American states, 27 countries, and four continents. He hosts the podcast Art of Adventure, which interviews world-class performers doing things never been done before in global exploration, exploration, human performance, and entrepreneurship. He's interested in all kinds of hacks and performance uh, techniques such as ketosis, fasting, human, longe- human longevity, and super performance. So he's kind of a geek like me, and I'm super excited to dig in and discuss ways to expand human potential and also hear some of his stories and uh, stories of people he's interviewed. He has, he's had some excellent guests on this podcast. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Danny, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So tell me about how all these things tie together. You mentioned that you were a scientist and you, you started to travel uh, for that. And then you became, uh, it started this love affair with travel and adventure. Walk me through that. Tell me your backstory. Yeah, well, when I was a kid, uh, my family was a very travel, uh, heavy, travel-friendly family, and uh, so we did a lot of road trips. I think it's a very American thing to do is road trip across the country in summer to see some national park, you know, go see um, the Black Hills and Mount Rushmore, uh, for example. Um, and I, I grew up as an only child, and I spent a lot of time just walking in the woods and playing in the creeks and streams and rivers of Missouri where I grew up. And I I didn't know about Charles Darwin at the time, but he's someone at this point who I identify with quite closely, someone who observes the natural world and then sits and thinks about it. And so that sort of uh, led me to a career in science and I was in grad school uh, just a few years ago working on my PhD in virology. I wanted to study the beginnings of life on Earth and the potential for life on other planets. And so I went to the most extreme place on Earth that I could think of, which was Yellowstone National Park and the boiling acid hot springs. And I spent three years uh, sampling and and attempting to discover new species in the hot springs. And in 2012, I successfully identified and uh, discovered a new species. That's amazing. <laughs> so, so for you, it started with this uh, kind of curiosity, would you say? Like curiosity of the natural world? Yeah, if you uh, are... F- familiar with Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. Uh, It's the theory that we all learn in a mix of different ways. There's eight different intelligences. There's mathematical, there's linguistic, there's kinesthetic or movement, there's uh, musical, there's interpersonal. And uh, one of them is naturalistic. And that's the sort of Charles Darwin uh, intelligence where where you are appreciating the beauty of things and then you're getting curious about what makes them tick, uh, what's going on inside of a of a plant as it's growing or what's, you know, just the reason why things work. And that is a big part of of how I learn is just finding something and then getting really curious about it and, and diving deep into trying to understand how it works. Okay, so it's kind of about breaking things down to their core components to discover how this plant became what it is. Uh, but you also do this with, with humans as well and on your show. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I've i been fascinated with, with um, social interaction and, and what makes people tick. And I think that the more you understand uh, 
and what drives them, or on a, on a group level, understanding the challenges that different groups in society face, uh, you, you really get to appreciate them on a deeper level. Um, that's why best friends are so great, because you, you really understand what makes them so unique. Yeah, that's great. So many of us uh, go through life, I think, without actually having any understanding of the processes that kind of run and control our life. Um, and I find that so fascinating. I think there's like some, some quote by uh, Michio Kaku or uh, a physicist who said, you know, there's so many people who, who go through life without any understanding of, you know, how the world works. And he's like, I want to know. I want to know how this happens. And I want to know what's, what's occurring here. And that's kind of like the art of science, I think. And I find it fascinating, too. I, <clears throat> I'm really interested in, you know, human potential and performance, just like you are. And, um, you know, like, just things that fascinate me, like, even the process of, of sleep, you know, it's such a complex process. And I want to know, like, you know, what facilitates sleep, you know, what um, makes me awake, you know, how do I stimulate that? How do I arrive at a certain state of mind? How do I arrive at that state of flow, like your, your previous guest, uh, Jiro Taylor, says, to, to facilitate, create, facilitate creativity? Um, so I'm really excited to, to talk about that. And I, I want to see what, uh, what you have to offer for us. Um, <clears throat> but I'd like to, to take the conversation that way. But first, uh, tell me a little bit more about your travels. And you mentioned that you've been to four continents. Yeah, I say that one of my goals is to live on every inhabited continent. And so I started with uh, an, easy, an easy one, which was studying abroad in Australia. I was studying marine biology when I was uh, undergrad, and that's that's a great intro. So for people that haven't done any living abroad or traveled abroad, I recommend a nice English-speaking country if you're an English-speaking person because it slots slots right in. It's super easy, and you'll still get culture shock anyway. Um, Spanish countries so are popular too, right? What's that? Sorry to interrupt. Uh, Spanish-speaking countries seem to be pretty popular too, like Latin America. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of people have you know. Uh, some modicum of Spanish speaking ability from high school or something like that. And so <laughs> you, you go there and you, you, exactly, you know, some vocab words, you're like, yeah, I, I recognize <laughs> that word that you're saying really fast. <laughs> Como estoy? <laughs> Como estas? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so actually that's what I did next. Uh, my second continent was living in, Spain, or I guess my third, because first first was North America. Uh, so I was uh, I was living and training to to be a professional cyclist, and I was living in southern Spain for a while. And at the beginning, I was very shy about speaking the language, uh, and so I really didn't participate in conversations for a few weeks. And then uh, it, it became clear that no one no one's going to speak English to me, and I was getting sick and tired of not talking to people. So I just had to fumble my way through speaking uh, Spanish in the present tense. And then by, by the end of the time there, I was conversational. That's what you got to do. You just got to push yourself, even if you feel foolish or look foolish. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, they, they would laugh at me. They would be like, are you trying to say this other thing? And I'd be like, yes. And they'd be like, okay, well, next time you say it right. And I'd be like, okay, fine. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, but it was, it was fun. Everyone, everyone is pretty, pretty accepting. And, uh, was the, that, the was cool thing was, for you? what's that? Did, did, was it rewarding for you to like speak in another language? I mean, did you feel that, that sense of positive reinforcement? Yes. I, I appreciate it a lot more when I'm doing it than, it's it's i find that it's really hard for me to learn a language before i go somewhere because i'm not actively using it and i and it's just hard for me to get the motivation to actually learn so i think that it's best to just get there and, and learn when you're surrounded by people that are that are forcing you to speak the language necessity is the mother of invention exactly when the need for something and, yeah. And I had, um, since I was there cycling and training, I had a group of friends and the thing that we had most in common was a love of 
bicycle racing. And so I was spending hours a day with, you know, groups of Spanish riders as, as we trained in the mountains. And, and so that was, uh, you know, I was reading cycling magazines to teach myself about, uh, the, the words I needed to talk to these guys about cycling. So my vocabulary started off as, as a lot of things to do about training and the actual, you know, like, what is a wheel? Like, what is, what do you call, uh, the, the frame or how do you say when you have a flat tire, that kind of thing. So was it that passion that you had for cycling, which spurred on your interest for, uh, personal improvement and peak performance? Well, I would say that, uh, you know, I grew up loving cycling even before I was a bike racer. I was watching the Tour de France as a kid and just marveling at the colors of the riders, you know, riding through the Alps or through the sunflower fields in central France. And I, and I dreamed of going out and, and being a racer. And I would go on these cycling adventures with my best friend and we would ride all day long. What, what we thought was just this huge adventure. It was actually like 25 miles probably, uh, when we were 13 and 14. And, um, we had this, this, uh, this ride that we called the donut ride where we would ride as far away as we could imagine being from home and then eat donuts and then, and then ride home. And, um, so I, I always had this, you know, this love of cycling. And then when it came time to compete, I was interested in, of course, how to, uh, fine tune my physical training and my strategy in order to beat, the other competitors and cycling is, is a cool sport. Uh, it, I, well, it's obviously, uh, I'm crazy about it. It's my favorite sport. Um, but it's also, I think the most strategically complex sport. I've played pretty much every, everything there is except for ultimate fighting and cycling because there's 200 riders and maybe 20 teams, each rider is, you know, riding for themselves, but they also have team responsibilities and then there's drafting and then there's weather and only one rider can win. So it's 20 teams versus 20 other teams, but the, you know, it's just, it's just so complex. Um, I always say that it's like, uh, marathon running meets car racing, uh, cause you've got all the technology. And so I was constantly looking for, for an edge and, uh, an understanding of physiology and what was happening with my body during training and trying to optimize the, um, the fine line that you have to walk between just totally driving your body into the ground and damaging it enough so that it compensates and gets stronger was that that's the biggest challenge I think of any competitive athlete. Yeah, that's fascinating. And there's, there's so much that comes into play, especially in those long-distance races as far as psychology, physiology. Uh, are you familiar with the race across America, Derek? Yeah. That's, uh, those guys, what do they do it in about 11 or 12 days, I think? Um, and they're, you know, it's it seems like an uncommonly dangerous bike race because pretty often you hear about someone starting to sort of dream or hallucinate while they're riding and then getting into some accident and into oncoming traffic. And, um, these guys are just pushing themselves to basically eat and sleep while continuing to ride for 11 days straight. And it's, it's just, I, I could never imagine doing it. Yeah, basically, it's just this endless race, and you, it's kind of optional how much you sleep, how much you eat, uh, you know, how how much you, uh, how many days you, how many hours you spend on the bicycle. But I was reading about this guy uh, Yuri Robic, and um, when he did this race, you know, he would consume more than ten thousand calories a day, which is way more than the body's meant to eat, and um, he would only sleep for ninety minutes each day uh, during the competition, and. I can only imagine, you know, he's, he's spending so many hours, like uh, more than 22 hours on a bicycle and, and his legs are just, you know, wearing down his, his butt is just like, he doesn't want to talk about that because it's, it's so sore. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's fascinating to me because it's, it's like, I feel like it's at the frontier of, of human performance and potential is uh, what these racers endure and 
how they're able to, to will themselves on to finish this race is unbelievable. Yeah, I, um, I, one of the, one of the biggest events that I did was a week long bike race. It's called the tour of the Gila. And, uh, I actually got to race against Lance Armstrong that year when he was making his comeback uh, after retirement. And what I what I noticed actually was that um, because I was really focusing on the rest that I was getting was that actually by the end of the week, I was actually much stronger and faster than I was at the beginning of the week. And it was it was relatively easy for me to keep up with these these world world champion level and tour de france winning level cyclists um and what happened was that it changed my physiology for the rest of the year pretty much and racing got way easier and and i know guys that have finished a tour de france you know they have maybe three years of fitness boost that comes from just from finishing a race like that Wow, that's incredible. And you mentioned uh, before the call that uh, fasting had a big difference in your performance. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, this was really interesting. I did a seven-day uh, no-food experiment. Um, I did first two days of juice, and then I said, ah, I just screw that. I'm just going to go with water from now on for the for the rest of the five days. And I wanted to experience ketosis, the state that People are talking about where you're burning fat for fuel using ketones instead of glucose to fuel your brain and you're supposed to have very clear thoughts and um, be quite productive in this ketotic state. And I continued to do my normal workouts um, playing ultimate frisbee. I'm getting ready for a tournament here and so I, I didn't want to lose any practice time. And I found during the fast my body was very sluggish, um, as you might expect. Um, but immediately after the fast, after one day of eating, I found that there is some sort of super compensation that, that took place and that, uh, I'm, I'm guessing maybe I had more red blood cells or maybe my weight had simply dropped and I had the same endurance, but lighter weight. Anyway, I found that I was able to, to basically run indefinitely for two hours at um, at our practice session and, and basically was was not fatiguing at the same rate I was before and everyone who tried to keep up with me was just struggling so it was a, some some crazy super compensation effect that gave me a ton of endurance it was really cool I wonder what causes that whether it's like just simply pushing yourself uh, past that period where uh, your your psychology just becomes so I don't know fired up from the hunger, maybe? I know that um, your psychology influences your physiology. Maybe it, it causes you to secrete more testosterone into the blood? Or is it just about drawing upon those re the reserves of glucose? Yeah, well, uh, another guy that I was playing with was telling me how he uh, did a lot of weight training on an inter intermittent fasting schedule uh, where he would fast 16 hours a day from 10 p.m. to 2 p.m., and do his his workouts right before breaking his fast. And so he said that challenge would release uh, HGH, human growth hormone. And so he was actually able to build muscle more quickly while fasting most of the time, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, and, and so he, clearly he's got to eat a ton in those, in those eight hours of when he's actually fueling up um, to be able to put on weight. That's fascinating. I know. Uh, I don't know if you know Travis Jameson, but he's an entrepreneur out here in Southeast Asia, uh, digital nomad. And uh, I, I lived with him for a little while, and and he was big on intermittent fasting as well. And he would skip breakfast every morning, saying that he would tell me it's a productivity killer. And he was the one that introduced me to intermittent fasting. But this guy, like you know, he would go to the gym every morning at around 10 a.m. and he's just totally ripped. He's huge, uh, but he never ate breakfast. You know, he always said that it's a productivity killer. And Ever since I talked to Travis that day, you know, I've always been interested in uh, the relationship between food and energy and productivity. And I noticed that, you know, I, I feel like for me, um, you know, there's a lot of thought about this, like whether you should eat a low glycemic breakfast that's high in protein uh, to increase willpower. Um, I, I've also been experimenting with eating a lot of water-rich foods. 
uh, like fruits and vegetables as a meal replacement uh, because I, I feel like it delivers more oxygen to the cells. I, I have a lot of theories about this, but I, I don't have anything, you know, that's more than a theory, I guess. But I find that for me, those, those two things work really well. Um, skipping meals, you know, seems to be able to, to let me perform a little bit uh, longer and, and using that hunger to, to drive myself. I really like what, what uh, your guest, John Hargrave, said about using hunger as a reminder, uh, as like a cue to, to do whatever it is you want to do. Uh, maybe you could take some of these theories and, and kind of maybe affirm some of them or, or uh, let me know what your experience has been. Yeah, uh, that uh, that was something I experienced uh, as far as what John Hargrave was saying about that the the hunger um, was was definitely a reminder. It was like an ever present thing. Um, I noticed that um, I when I was getting agitated or antsy, like if I was focusing for a, a long time on a piece of writing. Or, or working or something that I kind of wanted to be snacking. And I found myself uh, sucking on rock salt crystals. Just I, just I don't know why. They were, they were around and I started putting them in my mouth. And I was like, well, I'm just going to keep eating these. And I think there's that um, thing that a lot of people have where they, they have that nervous snackiness. And so I, I realized that I probably have that too, where I'm eating a lot of times out of boredom or lack of focus. And so having this hunger circling back around every few hours to remind me that I'm not eating, um, it, uh, it also, it also freed up a lot of time, um, because there's like the, the meal seeking the eating and then the digestion time, which, didn't come into play. And so I found that I was like, sort of, okay, now what do I do? I have this extra time. And I, I imagine it's the same way when you're, when you're sleeping less and you have extra time. And then it was, I don't know, it was sort of like, I felt a little guilty about it, but I felt excited that I had extra time for productivity as well. It was, it was odd for sure. Do you struggle with willpower and what do you do to, to create like a, I don't know, reduce the resistance or, or to create a straight of flow. What, what kind of practice yeah. do you use? Yeah, I, I do struggle with willpower, especially with um, creative, starting creative processes. Uh, once I get started, it's, it's smooth sailing, like if it's time to write or create a podcast. But I, I don't know what it is. And I recently learned a hack that I, I'm a big fan of. Um, which is simply reframing the work that you're about to do as fun rather than work. And um, there is a study that showed that the people who were told that they were going to play a math game um, were excited and they started practicing and studying up for it. And then there were people told they were about to take a math test and they procrastinated studying or learning and uh, we're not looking forward to it. It was the exact same set of questions given to both people, but the framing of whether they were going to do something fun, a game or a test, uh, caused their procrastination. So that's, that's what I've been doing most recently is just remembering how much fun I have when I get started and then saying, okay, I'm just going to go have some fun with this and, uh, it makes it a lot, a lot easier. <laughs> So it's it's uh, I think the terminology is gamification, right? Yes, yeah, and I um, I actually learned about that technique from Jane McGonigal's work in her book Super Better, which is this phenomenal piece all about how to gamify your life. <laughs> so for for this context, it's basically about outsmarting that lizard brain. You know, the lizard brain doesn't want to do anything except eat and sleep and have sex. And it doesn't want to work, right? So it's it's kind of like a technique to outmaneuver it, I guess. Yeah, and uh, there's another there's another great thing I picked up from this book. That's um, it's what your body, your physiology is the same when you're anxious and when you're excited. It's it's the same sort of 
uh, fight or flight response that's going on. And so whenever you feel anxious about something, you can change your state instantly by saying, I'm excited or let's get excited about this. And you, you just flip it. It's like flipping a switch um, right before you get on stage and you've got the butterflies and you're about to give a speech to an audience. You know, just say out. You can even yell, I'm excited out loud. And then you immediately change from being nervous to excited. So cool. Yeah, that's great. Are you familiar with um, Hakka, Derek? Hakka, yes. The, uh, the All Blacks, the, the rugby team does it. Yeah. Yeah, I've been watching these videos recently about Hakka, and I find it really fascinating. It's this ancestral war cry and this ritualistic movement of posture, and it, it originates from these, you know, the Maori tribesmen where uh, they'll encounter an enemy or a wild animal. They'll be feeling that anxiety that you're talking about, and then they turn that anxiety into kind of courage where they, they like, shout and they stick out their tongue and they, they widen their eyes, and suddenly they face their fear and then they turn it into like uh, intimidation of their opponent. They kind of rebound it, and I find it fascinating. I, I find like there's something powerful there because, you know, we experience that same fear, that same resistance, and suddenly we we turn it on its head, and, and now we have this courage in face of fear, and we can we can tackle it. Yeah, and I think. Um... You know, I practice a lot of uh, power posing. That's simply taking poses that take up a lot of space. Uh, the Superman pose, standing with your hands on your hips, or the victory pose where you're standing with your hands in the air. Uh, I do that a lot before I go on stage or even in, in a game when I lose a point or I'm feeling defeated, I will do some quick power posing. I think it takes 90 seconds or, or two minutes of holding this powerful posture, uh, basically be, be a big gorilla in space and it will release testosterone and it will make you feel more positive. And, uh, so I, so I do that as a hedge against, you know, getting into a negative mental state. And you call that power pose, right? Yeah. And there's a great, um, there's a great TED Talk by Amy Cuddy, C-U-D-D-Y, about power posing and how uh, the body affects the mind. And so the, the posture you have, whether you're slumped in a chair or you're sitting upright in a tall, you know, regal posture affects how you feel about yourself. Um, and so you can actually change your mind. I think we've probably all heard of the, if you stick a pen in your mouth, um, and you know, grip it. It will make you think you're happy because your face thinks it's smiling. Um, you know, it's 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 cool how the <laughs> the body can influence how you actually feel inside. It's actually smiling. Just forcing a smile makes you happier. That's that's fascinating stuff. Power posing by Amy Cuddy. Okay, I'm gonna check that out after. I um, a few episodes ago, I interviewed Colin Robertson. He has a blog called Will the Powered uh, Will Powered. And um, he would suggest using exercises like um, using your opposite hand more often, your less dominant hand, uh, mm. is a way to kind of increase your uh, willpower. And he has a bunch of uh, techniques for that um, where he, he talks about, you know, posture, uh, work on your posture, uh, 10 minutes of meditation, just little exercises like this. And, and your speech, too, uh, is another, another technique he, he advocates yeah, yeah, when I was um when I was playing a lot of ping pong, my ping pong mentor uh told me to practice left-handed and he he said that you can you can get super good um you know with your normal hand, your dominant hand and then you'll find a huge leap in improvement in the dominant hand after you practice with your left hand, your non-dominant hand. And so I trained for weeks with the, with the left hand. And then when I switched back to the right, I had improved, uh, without, he said, there's like a 10%. If you improve a lot with, with your left hand, 10% of that will go to the other side because there's cross brain communication. And so I actually broke through a plateau in performance just by switching to the other hand. 
which was fascinating. Now, why is that? Is it because uh, is it something kinesthetic, or is it uh, because of the additional challenge of playing with your weaker hand that makes, uh, by comparison, makes the stronger hand seem easier? What's what facilitates that? Would you say? Uh, I'm not exactly sure why uh, he he the way he explained it was that it was uh, something going on, you know, right left brain communication. Um, what I found was that. Uh, because I was so used to concentrating on making my dumb left hand do the right thing that I had a lot more precision and control when I switched back to my right hand. So it might have had to do also with the focus I was applying with each ping pong shot. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I wonder whether the development was, was mental or whether it was physical and whether, uh, you know, exposing yourself to these challenges forces you to perform better. Sort of like um, if you were playing a game and uh, you start playing on expert mode, suddenly you go back to the easy mode and it's like, wow, I'm, I'm an ex- I mean, this is ridiculously easy. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I love uh, adding little challenging little things to, to my daily life just... Uh, Little little micro adventures, if you will. Um, it not not only does it um, help you sort of create new memories and have a di- more diverse array of experience, but uh, as as you increase your challenges, you uh, increase the focus that's required, and it keeps you in in a state of flow more often. Um, the Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's state of optimal experience they actually um steven kotler was was working with chiksemihai and they calculated it out i'm not i don't know how they figured this out but they mathematically figured out that you need to be doing something that's four percent more challenging than your current level of skill in order for you to be able to drop into this state of flow the state where you know time slows down or speeds up and you have this sort of ultimate concentration on what you're doing when you're totally in the zone. Um, so I don't know if you can, you know, if it's something subjective, like, uh, driving your car to work, if you can challenge yourself 4% more, um, but maybe with the work you're doing, you can, you can find something that's just slightly more challenging and then rise to meet that challenge. Oh, absolutely. As an entrepreneur, there's always challenges. There's always more things to learn. You continue to have to adapt and to evolve. Um, so, so who was it that said uh, 4% more challenging? That quote, where does it come from? Yeah, I think that was Stephen Kotler. Uh, he has this project called the Flow Genome Project. And um, so he's, uh, there's, there's ways when you're in flow that you increase your rate of learning by 500 percent 500 to 700 percent which is one of the major benefits of dropping into a flow state increasing productivity while in a flow state Um, and so he's working on ways to try to hack hack ways that you can drop into flow more frequently i love it stephen kotler the rise of superman and the flow genome project i love this. this is this someone you've had on your podcast uh, I, ha- I, I'm trying to get him on my podcast. He's an ideal person to have. He does a lot of other stuff. He wrote, he wrote a book with, um, Peter Diamandis about the future as well. He's got, a, he's got a lot of interesting things going on. Um, I'll let you know when I get him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, man. I'm, I'm going to download several episodes of your podcast. You mentioned yesterday that, um, I had exposed you to a bunch of new information. Now you're returning the favor. I'm really excited to to check out some of this information. Uh, the, the Flow Dojo at the Flow Genome Project. <laughs> yeah. And this is all about just um, facilitating mental energy, creative energy. I take it right. Physical. Yeah. When you when you're in a state of flow, um, you also come up with more solutions to your problems you um it's like a great it's a great phase to be and a lot of people get in this phase of brainstorming i think um and 
you experience artistic creativity and greater creativity of ideas. Um, I think it's largely because you're, um, in a lot of these cases, your, your sort of lizard brain is preoccupied with either a movement that you're doing, like being in uh, on a surfboard and your body is really concentrating or even happens in the shower when you're showering and you come up with that aha moment, that uh, idea that just seems to come to you. And it's because your body is uh, taking care of, of the movement side of thing and it frees up your thinking brain to to be creative and, and work on the sort of cerebral processes. Yes, and this is something that I've been very preoccupied with lately. I just wrote an article for Sean Ogle about um, how to create uh, massive amounts of content, you know, to be really prolific as a writer. I, I'm going to buy this book, uh, The Rise of Superman. I'm just going to devour this. I'm, I'm really excited. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, so... Derek, uh, let me let me uh, transition here. So we're, we're kind of talking about a little bit about entrepreneurship now. Um, tell me, what was the transition for you from uh, scientist to being an entrepreneur now to the point where you're living in Bali? How are you? Making, yeah, how are you making uh, your money, or what's what's your muse? I guess. Tell me about that. Actually, uh, so the uh, since we're talking about um, making decisions while moving, it it all happened when I was on a hike in Hawaii through the jungle and I had been thinking about whether I wanted to continue in academic science and, and try to become a professor, a research professor at a large university. That was where my life uh, was headed as a PhD student. And what I realized was my favorite part about grad school was actually teaching and I wanted to reach more people and so I knew that eventually I wanted to be the type of entrepreneur that um, that taught people, whether it was through podcasting or writing or speaking. And so on that day, on that hike, uh, I talked through all the whole pros and cons of, of all my choices. And it became an easy choice that I was going to, to wrap up my PhD with a master's degree, um, essentially drop out of the program. And... Um, my partner, my wife at the time, uh, had always been wanting to travel with me. And so we, she, um, she started a food blog and I started a cycling coaching business. And while I finished grad school, we both grew our businesses to, uh, our goal said we each have to be making over a thousand dollars a month. Uh, in a remote income before we're going to take off on this trip because we expect that's how much we'll be able to spend uh, because Asia is, is quite inexpensive to travel in. And yeah, it took us, um, I don't know, six months or so to, to build those businesses up. And then at that point, we we hit the road and I've been, uh, we, we're, we're now separated Um but I've been traveling in Southeast Asia for the last two years, and I've been in Bali for the last year. I love that story. So you were in the jungle in Hawaii. You had this crisis of meaning. Uh, I've had that too. I think a lot of us have had, can relate to that, where you wondered whether you were going to continue down this traditional path, and um, you decided to make it on your own way, and you turned to consulting, you said, right? How did you manage to uh, get your clients and, and what, what kind of consulting were you doing? Yeah. Um, so the, the first, first business, cycling coaching, I, I had been helping friends with their training for quite some time. And it was simply a matter of figuring out how to monetize it. Um, I thought that I needed some sort of certification uh, so I became a certified cycling coach through USA Cycling, which is the governing body. Um, that essentially amounted to me taking a test and then I got a stamp of approval. And then I just started telling people and it was all word of mouth. Um, hey, I'm I'm starting this coaching business. If you want to be coached by me or if you know anyone that um, 
wants to be coached. And I was focusing on junior level and university level riders because um, I it just happened to be that I good at explaining the the basics of of a sport and helping them sort of accelerate their learning curve in the first few years. So um, I'm not that level of coach that would be coaching an Olympic athlete. I'm much better at taking beginners and bringing them up to speed and getting them to a sort of a competitive national level. And that's what my business was founded on. And um, so I had this, I had this business going and then I started my podcast. Then I started adding in other um, other things like uh, coaching for for entrepreneurs around charisma, around a lot of artists, helping them get their their business up and running online. And so, coaching from cycling sort of melded into freelance coaching of all of all types, in addition to running the podcast. So if, if I'm going to work with you, Derek, uh, I say, you know, hey, I want you to coach me. I want to expand my potential. Um, where would you start with a client and, and what would you focus on to get them to the next level? Yeah, I think that, and this is what worked well for me. And so I really just coach based on my experience. But I think a lot of introspection and a lot of thinking about your natural talents your natural inclinations, what you like to do, where you feel rewarded, uh, and getting a very clear picture of of who you are and how you feel like you contribute to the world uh, to sort of help build the vision of where you want to go. And then it's simply a matter of trying to act in such a way that moves you down that path of where you want to go. And that's when tactics and, and more specifics, uh, specific things that come from a coach's experience uh, come into play. Gotcha. And then you help them get there faster. Cool. So, so is consulting something that you're still doing? Is that, is that how you earn the bulk of your income? Because I've, I've seen that you have, um, I, I like this, you have your podcast sponsored on Patreon. Uh, nearly $40 per episode. It's not much, but that's, that's still another nice passive income stream. Because you're doing uh, two episodes a week, right? Yeah, I've got I've yeah. got the podcast on Patreon. Um, I have uh, some advertisements, and the biggest source of income that I actually didn't expect is the affiliate marketing side of things. When a guest comes on your show, and they have a course or a book or some product to sell, and then you help them sell it. Uh, especially with expensive courses like my friend's Amazon selling course that goes for uh, 2000 US with a 50% commission. If you sell a few of those, you can be doing really well. And um, I've, I've got a friend, you might, you might be familiar with him, uh, Navid Moazes, um, basically is generating the bulk of his income, you know, 20 to $40,000 a month based on helping other people sell their products. Um, it's, a, it's a really cool model. You only, you only sell things that you've used or that you really stand behind. Um, and so you're sort of like an expert saying, like a recent one I did, my friends are teaching people how to make online courses. I took part of their course and it's really amazing. So I got behind it and... Um, I could speak with authority that, that it was a really good product. That's fantastic. So when you do this, because uh, I've never done much affiliate, uh, I haven't generated much affiliate income, but when you do this, um, when you do something like, uh, ah, excuse me, when you do this, do, do, you, do you use a platform like ClickBank or something like that, or do you just create these affiliate partnerships directly with the providers? Sorry, could you repeat the question, Danny? Yeah, sorry. There's, there's quite a few people talking here, so maybe that's uh, why it's cutting out a little bit. Uh, one second. Let me, uh, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, let me repeat the question. Yeah, so I haven't generated much affiliate income yet myself, so I'm curious about this. When you work with these people, do you go through a platform like a marketplace like uh, ClickBank, or do you just set up arrangements with 
uh, the providers directly? And if so, how do, you, how do they remain accountable if you send them leads? So it's it's different with each person. Um, the the more pro people they have an affiliate plan set up because lots of people are helping them sell their courses. So they have pre written social media updates and emails that you can just send out that you can sort of copy and paste and send out to your email list. Um, they'll give you your own special link that has your name. Uh, or the name of your brand, like Art of Adventure link. And uh, basically everything's taken care of for you. They they run essentially a campaign, and it's just your job to provide that information to your fans. Um, I'm using my email list, Twitter, and Facebook uh, for that. And it's it's really cool. I... Um, uh, I was was nervous when I first started to see, you know, because I thought, oh, I don't want to. Um, I, I guess it's like anything when, when you're not sure if you're being annoying by sharing a product with someone or if you're being helpful. Uh, and so I just that's that's why I make really sure that what I'm helping sell that I that I'm a big fan of, so that that I really am providing essentially a service i'm helping people become aware of something that they might need uh, and it works out well for everyone financially could you give, could you give me a few examples of some uh, affiliate products that you've promoted that have been well for you i'm just just curious sorry could you say that again yeah sure sorry there's there's some people here uh, chatting so i might be cutting out uh could could you give me some examples of some affiliate Partnerships or products that you've uh, that you've promoted on your site that have done really well. Yeah, so the most recent one I did was uh, for some friends that are that are actually running a gamified course about how to create e-courses, uh, and I'm actually uh, using their taking their course at the same time as promoting it. Uh, I have a partnership right now with that I'm just starting with. A friend's workout program, which is great for digital nomads and travelers. It's a 20-minute sort of high-speed workout uh, that I've been using for the last year. And um, I mentioned a friend's Amazon course that teaches people how to sell on Amazon. And I've seen a lot of uh, success from people that have used their course so that I know it works so I could get behind that as well. That's the Marketplace Superheroes course. Excellent. And is there a, uh, a ebook or anything that you recommend for someone that wants to get started generating affiliate income to get up to speed with this? Uh, I know that Pat Flynn has a lot of free resources about affiliate marketing. And I think, uh, so that's Pat Flynn with a smart passive income. And I think that's where he was starting his whole journey back when he started his blog was helping sell uh, preparation courses for engineering exams. And um, it's, this, it's this cool model that's repeated a lot of places. Basically, you provide a review of the course or product or whatever it is, and then you say whether you recommend it or not. Uh, I've seen this happen with... Uh, hotels. I've seen it happen with um, yoga retreats. Someone goes around taking all different kinds of yoga retreats around the world, reviewing them, and then offering them for sale. Um, so it's it's this um, service that the internet's The problem with the internet is we have too much information for you to really know what is worthwhile and what's not. And so these people are curating information, helping you make a purchasing decision. If you want to learn about podcasting, you know, there's a lot of choices. Um, so having someone review those and explain why this is good, uh, is, is a valuable thing for people. And then if they buy from you, then, well, that's great for everyone too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Derek, for sharing your wealth of knowledge uh, during this discussion. We talked uh, about so much stuff uh, regarding, uh, you know, psychology, performance, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, willpower, uh, power posing, so many things here. (laughs) 
I'm going to, I'm yeah. going to listen to this interview a couple of times and just, uh, I'm going to, you know, check a bunch of these references and things that you mentioned. Thank you so much. Yeah, Danny, it's, uh, it's great talking to you. Uh, you are also someone that's just full of, uh, bits of useful information. I feel like, uh, it would, it would help me just to hang out with you. So, um, it goes both ways. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, let's, let's make it happen, man. Either I'll, uh, I'll hop over there to Bali or you come here to, to Thailand and, uh, We'll, we'll rent some motorbikes or something and, and go on a, a hike or something. Yeah, I would love that. That sounds great. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Derek. And I highly recommend that everyone check out your podcast. I'm a big fan of it already. Uh, you have some great episodes on there. Um, this guy, Jiro Taylor, uh, you just interviewed Tony Wrighton, the How to Get More Energy and NLP. I love this stuff. I can't wait to check this out. Uh, anything else that you wanted to sign off with or that you wanted to recommend? Yeah. Uh, well, I just tell people, uh, one of, one of my favorite things to do is take a lot of photos while I'm out on adventure. And so I post those on Instagram. And, um, so you can see some photos from my recent, uh, waterfalls expedition or, uh, whatever, whatever else it is that I'm up to. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways to get in touch. <laughs> so just look up uh, Art of Adventure on Instagram. Is that right? Uh, it's actually under Derek Loudermilk on Twitter and Instagram. And um, also, if you, if you want to go on an adventure or if you want to try something challenging and you need some encouragement, feel free to email me, Derek at DerekLoudermilk.com, and I will support you in whatever adventure you want to go on. Excellent. Thank you so much for your work, Derek, and uh, keep going, man. It's great. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. Take care. Bye-bye.